welcome to the Jurassic Park cast, the Jurassic Park podcast where guests chat with me about Michael Crichton's 1990 novel, Jurassic Park, but also not that too. My name's Ryan Rogers and I'm a big dumb Jurassic Park fan. Welcome to episode 61, Descent, recorded on July 22nd, where all my baseball games keep getting rained out week after week. It's a bummer, but this episode is not going to be a bummer. Thank you for joining me today. A continued thank you to Christoph Oaks of Snail, S-N-A-L-E, and you can check out his incredible album on Spotify and Bandcamp, and today's intro is from the song Shelter Dog, and our outro is going to be Black Coffee. All right, I've got a few corrections. The first is about Braveheart. Remember that cinematic masterpiece? <laughs> Me too. Turns out Mel Gibson's William Wallace couldn't have worn a kilt because they wouldn't have been invented for another 300 years. Can you imagine that? So what's next? Are going to say that there wasn't blue war paint back then, too? Uh, anyhow, the uh, the official dance of Utah is not the Macarena. I was wrong about that. It's the square dance. I, I should have known better on that one. And finally, I was wrong to speak ill of lava lamps. As a, as a penance, here's a fun trick you can try at home. If you put a raisin in a glass of carbonated drink, it will float up and down continually from the bottom of the glass to the top, just like a lava lamp. So you can shock and amaze your friends with that little one. In Dinosaur News... Our first story is about a new ceratopsian just announced on July 2023 in the journal Cretaceous Research with the paper Furcatoceratops elucidens, a new centrosaurine from the upper Campanian Judith River Formation, Montana, USA. The name says it all. <laughs> What's great is this new critter was uncovered from Montana, where we'll be spending a bit more time discussing in this episode. The Furcatoceratops adds to the data necessary to discuss the, quote, taxonomic diversity, phylogeny, and ontogeny of early diverging ceratopsids. The name is derived from the Latin furcatus and elucidens, meaning forked and enlightening, respectively, and the Greek cera and tops, meaning horned face, coming together to name this creature the enlightening forked horn face. <laughs> The holotype NSM PV24660 is housed at the National Museum of Nature and Science, that's in Japan, and it was uncovered from the Judith River Formation in Montana. It's comprised of a nearly complete disarticulated skeleton, including numerous skull elements, a nearly complete left front and hind limb, parts of the pelvis, and most of the vertebral column. Those skull elements helped the authors to find that Furcatoceratops is closely related to Nasutoceratops, which is known from the Kaiparowitz formation in Utah, but from the same Campanian era in the late Cretaceous. And the paper says, quote, the holotype is inferred to be a subadult individual based on its surface textures, histological features, size, and suture obliteration patterns among bones, thus providing insights into the ontogeny of ceratopsid dinosaurs, the inferred ontogenetic sequence of F. Elucidin suggests that the supracranial elements coossified earlier than narial elements, as in the chasmosaurine triceratops, but possibly unlike in derived centrosaurines, because most bones such as cranial and vertebral elements are disarticulated and well-preserved, the holotype will serve as a useful comparative specimen for future ceratopsian research. So good for them. To picture Furcatoceratops, imagine it as a centrosaurine animal, meaning it's a medium-sized horned dinosaur with a short, high face, usually with a neck frill that, that lacks ornamentation along the ridge, and this will have two modest brow horns, the forks, which gives it, it, it its name, and no known nasal horn. And of course, it'd be quadrupedal and maybe like 15 feet long. Considering a Triceratops is around 25 feet long, so this wouldn't be quite as big as that. Pretty cool, and I'm glad it came out because I was going to have to tell you about some enantiornithine bird instead. But we're not going to do that. Uh, our next article is about a very big dinosaur. This one is from June 2023, also from the Journal of Cretaceous Research, called A New Gigantic Titanosaur from the Upper Cretaceous Northwestern Patagonia, Argentina. 
The animal is known from its holotype MPCAPV820, housed at the Museo Provincial Carlos Amagino, which was uncovered from the Huancul formation. It's comprised of a left humerus, partial radius, left metacarpal 2, left ischium, partial left femur and fibula, and a partial right tibia. They estimate this guy was like 98 feet long, and rightly it's categorized as a colossosaurian, which makes them enormous sauropods from South America during the late Cretaceous. The name is derived from the, pardon my pronunciation here, the, the Mapadugan word, uh, chucaro, which translates to hard and indomitable or untamed, and uh, from diripienda, which is Latin for scrambled. So the chucarosaurus diripienda is what it's called and it means it's the untamed lizard the scrambled untamed lizard uh, its limbs are considered slender for a titanosaur but you can imagine this thing just being unimaginably big uh, all right with the corrections and the dinosaur news out of the way please let me introduce you to my special guest this episode well my guest today is a professor of paleontology taphonomy and ichnology at montana state university's department of earth sciences whose research is largely field-based and focuses on the interface between biologic and geologic processes to address a variety of questions on dinosaur paleobiology please welcome montana state university's 2021 winner of the cox faculty award for creative scholarship and teaching dr david vericchio how are you doing today good Thank you very much for having me. I'm happy you're here. So Dr. Vricchio and I met uh, 2.7 million years ago during the Great American Biotic Interchange while he was riding south on an unusually large species of camel, and I was heading north riding an unusually large species of armadillo, and since we've become passing acquaintances, so thank you for joining. Uh, it's good to have you here with me. Uh-huh. <laughs> Received it to do... slow journey on armadillo. I think that's... Uh... Yeah, it's going to take you about 2.7 mile, million years to get to Canada, I think. I think you're right. Um, so in our correspondence, as we were leading up to this opportunity, uh, you proved to be very aware of some of the geographic localities featured in, in uh, the novel Jurassic Park. And so it suggests to me that you might be very familiar with the text. How would you describe, I guess, your relationship to Michael Crichton's 1990 novel Jurassic Park? Uh, I, I read it a long time ago, mm-hmm. um, something about 30 years ago when I was a grad student of Jack Horner's um, at, as, the, as the promotion and buzz was happening about the new movie coming out. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I read the book while, while in camp working on my PhD field locality uh, in the summer of, I don't know, 92 or 91, somewhere around there. Wow. So you're actually doing field work as you're reading about the, the field work at the beginning of the book. Is that right? That's right. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so how does uh, the novel's depiction of, of uh, working out in the Badlands of Montana uh, reflect the reality of working in the Badlands of Montana? Uh, yeah, I have to say that I'm pretty fuzzy on this. That's one of the questions about the book. I don't remember too much. Well, that's fair. Um, but I know that the, the initial description of the trailer, I think they visit the trailer where Jack Horner was working and... Um, so I've heard stories of the trailer. Uh, they were working on some of the embryonic material that they've been finding out there. There's a story of an important embryonic tooth that had been in a pillowcase that uh, some mice got and stole off the shelf, and they had to hunt around oh, wow. to see where they, where they found that, and you know, had been chewed through by a by a mouse, but they recovered the tooth. Yeah, so that's important because that was a Troodon embryo, was what the ultimately proved to be a Troodon embryo, which is the dinosaur that I worked on. So, oh, interesting. So there was actually 
a specimen that Crichton was referring to specifically that he called a Velociraptor, but was actually perhaps a Pterodon specimen that was... I don't want to refer to you. You'd have to refresh my memory. Oh, okay. Well, very well. Uh, how about the movie? Was that something that uh, it was a you know a cultural touchstone for a generation? Have, uh, have you any fun memories of seeing that film for the first time or, or any favorite lines or characters? Yeah, was, yeah I mean, I, I was a student of Jack Horner's, and so there was a buzz in the lab, and yeah. we had a... We had a, a private showing at the Museum of the Rockies for all the staff oh, and wow. students. Uh, um, so that was very exciting. Yeah. So, yeah, it was pretty interesting. Wow. So your first time seeing it was a private showing at school in Montana? Yeah, at the Museum of the Rockies. Yeah. So it was like, a you know, prior to it opening to the public, we got to see it. Really? You know, a day earlier. That's very cool. Well, that, what a good story. That's cool. I was just saying, it impacted, you know, Jack's lab. You know, he was the scientific consultant on it, but the, those monies came into the lab and helped support student research. And yeah, so that was a exciting and also a, a, a nice financial benefit for students doing their projects and everything. So. Really cool. So I had the uh, the great opportunity to to have uh, paleo artist Douglas Henderson on the show once, and uh, he revealed the correct pronunciation for Chateau. He pronounced it, and and I never would have guessed that's how you pronounce that place in Montana because I um, I got this francophone influence that uh, doesn't translate well. So I'm hoping you can help me with another similar concern that I have. So there is a rock formation. Well, I would say it's Chateau. Chateau. Everyone from Chodo calls it Chateau. I lived in Chateau for three years. So okay. The people that live there call it Chateau. Uh, and actually, the first my first field trip to Egg Mountain, they were, everyone was talking about, oh, we're going to Shoto and Shoto, and these signs would show up that had it written on the sign. Yes. And then it, it wasn't until we got there and I went, oh, that Shoto. <laughs> and I didn't connect it with the spelling, and so like it didn't mean anything until I was like, oh, that's yeah. I think they mispronounce it in the movie too. It could be they call them Chato or something weird. Yeah. So well, I don't know. It's. It's, you know, a bastardized It's, it's uh, I think it was a French, you know, fur trapping family mm -hmm. from that it was named after. Well, I think if had. you let uh, Richard Attenborough say the name, maybe he gets a, a bit of Scottish leeway to pronounce it how he sees fit. <laughs> Who knows? Yes. So there's a there's a rock formation, which I can, I'm uncertain on how to pronounce. So I'll need, I'll need somebody with, uh, with uh, uh, a geology perspective to tell me. So it's, the formation is, B-U-T-T-E-S. <laughs> I don't want to sound incorrect. Is it a butte or a butt? We say buttes, yeah, buttes. I'd like to say, I'd like yeah, to call it that too. I have a proclivity towards the, the long U sound in, in like culinary and cuticles and not culinary. <laughs> <laughs> I prefer a butte too, but uh, but I would, if it's a butt, I'll, pr I'll pronounce it however it's, however it's required. The city of Butte, Montana, mm -hmm. and sometimes people in a derogatory reference will call it Butt, Montana. But yeah. <laughs> well, if it's Butte, good. I'm, I'm, I like it that way better. I think so. <laughs> That's good. All right. So the field work, as depicted in the Jurassic Park films, has always been what appears to be a very oversimplified representation of what goes on. The specimens appear to be of unbelievably exceptional good preservation and it's uh in the snake water i think is where they put it and uh they uncover the fully articulated giant velociraptor by just sweeping away a few brush strokes of sand um <laughs> so as you're combing through montana countryside under the big sky how does uh, an excavation measure up to what jurassic park has depicted 
Yeah, I was just watching it recently. <laughs> and you know, those, those shots of just like brushing the dirt away. And there's no cracks or flaws <laughs> in the bones. No, yeah, it hasn't been crushed. It hasn't been broken up at all. Yeah, they're kind of amazing. Yeah. So, yeah, there doesn't seem anything like... <laughs> like excavations i would say you know typically when you get nice specimens that are in hard rock you know when the bone is well preserved usually it means that they haven't been weathered very much you know by recent weathering and and usually you have to really dig at that rock mm -hmm. you know maybe they're in sandstone there are a few sites you know we worked at a t-rex locality in eastern montana in hell creek and that you know you could expose the bone but you know you're applying lots of glue on it mm -hmm. you know, all of it is the right term um as you're exposing it so that eventually got laid out and fully exposed and that was incredibly impressive um but it took a lot of work and time to to get that exposed like that mm -hmm. i was digging in niger paul serena led trip and we came across some Aranosaurus material, you know, that big crested, you know, uh, sailbacked iguanodon. Um, and that was, in, that was kind of covered in desert sand. And we, we literally uncovered it in like 10 minutes of just brushing the sand across. Because, you know, it had been exposed and eroded out. Yeah. And then we, the sands had covered it. So we were just kind of like pawing out with our hands or brushes and, that was kind of amazing. That that was the closest I felt to some of the stuff depicted in That's Jurassic. cool. Would you yeah. be able to identify the Oranosaurus like right there in the ground? Would you be like, oh, I can't believe because they're pretty distinctive. Yeah, That's yeah. I mean, it was articulated and had you know had big, those big gnarled spines. Yeah. Wow. So it, was, it was like oh, look at that. Yeah, it was kind of amazing. That is really cool. That's really good. So you were telling me that uh, you were just uh, days ago in the famous Egg Mountain area, which is uh, in the book. It's named Egg Hill. But uh, what were you doing in Egg Mountain just the other day? Uh, you know, so I had a couple of research projects going on. And we, we, from 2010 to 2016, we reopened Jack Horner's quarry at Egg Mountain specifically um, and kind of had slowly been digging away there. And in the process, one of the most abundant animals there is Orodromius, a small herbivorous dinosaur. Um, and so I'm a student. He was an undergrad. Now he's a grad student. Uh, we'll start in, in the fall. Zach Canbaum has been working on Orodromia. So he, he wanted to look at some of the localities where Orodromias have been found in the vicinity at Egg Mountain, but also in the vicinity of Egg Mountain. So we were there just for a short trip to kind of just check out some of these uh, past localities. Yeah. Hmm, interesting. And you, like, I, I guess, see what you might need next time you come with a full pack or something. and. Yeah, you know, we well, Egg, Egg Mountain, the, the, it's, it's interesting because most of the fossil material looks like it was sort of self-buried. We have all sorts of, the most common fossils are insect pupa cases, these soil insects of various kinds, beetles, wasps, bees, maybe cicadas, mm -hmm. uh, uh, there might be um, non-insects like centipedes in there too. Um, so it's a lot of soil activity. Then we have eggs that were buried in the ground, right, by the dinosaurs. And then we have Orodromius remains. And so our question is, was Orodromius burrowing into the set substrate? Because everything else has been kind of burrowed. Mm -hmm. uh, we even have animals that were fossorial from there that were found in 
neat little groups that well are, are well preserved. Um, so our question is kind of like to wrestle with the Orodromius sites and whether it could have burrowed. And so that's kind of what we wanted to suss out some of those localities. That's really neat. Um, so one of the, there is kind of like this depiction of the, the Mesozoic Lake Cretaceous of Montana that uh, Crichton depicts. One of the things that he describes is that there is a, the skies are darkened by the smoke of nearby vo volcanoes. Is there evidence of volcanic activity in those rocks out there? There is, yeah. I mean, cool. the, uh, at the time, you know, we had this coastal plain across Montana. Seaway was somewhere in central Montana, you know, maybe kind of like on the border of Alberta and Saskatchewan, somewhere out there. Um, but we're pretty far west of that, 300 kilometers. <laughs> and so we're close to the mountain front and closer to the volcanic activity. So if you look at like the sandstones at near Egg Mountain, um, they're rich in volcanic material. That stuff is, should normally degrade, you know, chemically and physically. So if you go farther to the coast, you, know, you get more mature sandstones. But here, close to Egg Mountain, you get, you know, you, you know, whack into a sandstone and you see biotype grains that just form from eruptions. Um, there are a few ash beds. You know, there's sort of a, dom a predominance of, of ashy material in a lot of the beds. There's one cool um, ash bed that's two meters thick, which may have been even thicker, you know, it's been squished by geologic processes, yeah. but it was a huge deposit. It has crystals on the bottom, so it's kind of like a big tuft when it was formed. But the cool thing in it is it has felled trees, so there are logs, and, a, and a, Eric Roberts did a study on those that they had been blown over by this eruption, and so they're all kind of aligned and kind of powerful reflecting the, the eruption that, that knocked them all down. So it's kind of cool. That is Volcan interesting. Okay, volcanoes then. You <laughs> yeah, I would say volcanoes. There's a, core, there's a core of an old volcano called Haystack Butte, which you can see from Egg Mountain that's farther to the south too. Um, yeah, so they're there. We're, we're, we're close to the volcanoes at Egg well, this is really cool. So you're talking about kind of like a burrowing larva, and you're talking about the Orodromius was uh, something that could have been burrowing. Uh, I have a wonderful British book called Terrible Lizard, The First Dinosaur Hunters and the Birth of a New Science. It's by an, uh, Deborah Cadbury. came out in 2000. Anyhow, she retells the, the history of the field of dinosaur paleontology, and early in the book she speaks of the writings of uh, Oxford University's Reverend William Buckland, who had a wide range of interests, and his greatest passion was for what he called undergroundology, was a new subject before they came up with geology. <laughs> and so it was probably just a nickname that he gave to it, but uh, as the science matured into a you know structured field of study, um, what does it suggest that the, the Earth has a fascinating history and yet you have to look underground to find it? Um, when you're prospecting for dinosaurs, though, generally, like you were mentioning, they're kind of, you want them on the surface. You're not really going into the ground necessarily, unless, but then you have to like go into rock, right? Like, they're not just in the dirt. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, originally they were in the dirt, but then those, those, that dirt has to be converted into rocks by geologic processes, diagenesis, largely just compaction, mm -hmm. heat and pressure as, the, as they get buried deeper and deeper into the ground. Right, and then you have to get those rocks back up to the surface somehow. Yeah. Right, through erosion or some kind of tectonic activity that lifts them up. Yeah. Yeah. Really crazy stuff. Underground Undergroundology is what she reports was once called upon a time. 
So uh, this is a really opportune moment in, in my coverage of the novel because we're in a chapter called Descent, and it's about going down underground to find a subterranean dromaeosaurid nest. And uh, like I said, I'm glad to have you here because you've literally written papers on discovering subterranean dinosaurs and dromaeosaurid nests. So uh, you're, you're the perfect fit here. Um, and I was hoping we might go and talk a little bit about the Erectodromius. You're the lead the author on a paper, which uh, described a fairly strong case for an actual burrowing dinosaur. Um, what would you, I guess, how would you describe the discovery and how you came to interpret the fossils as a, as a family of burrowing animals? Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we had found some Erectodromius remains, some bits and pieces, right? At the time, we didn't know what we were, you know, looking at. And then we came to one that had that had a, the outcrop had a sort of an oval shape to it and there was bones poking out of that. And I kind of just assumed that that was some just sort of concretion. Hmm. And, and the, the black leaf formation is where that comes from. There, most of the beds have been tipped vertical so that they're, they're almost at 90 degrees, you know, as, rather than being horizontally um, just because of more recent mountain activity. And so we started excavating that site, and it was sort of awkward to work. You could kind of get three people in there. Two could kind of sit on the ground adjacent to this sort of oval, what I was thinking of was the concretion. And then I, I took the other the awkward position um, where you kind of had to stand up and, and reach, could kind of stand in this gully and reach over to dig. And so I was digging above the, the oval concretion. And... The people on the left of me and on the right of me, which I thought they would be finding bones, they found nothing, nothing, nothing. Mm. <laughs> I was starting to find a few little bones above the concretion. Um, and I was like, I don't understand. So I was like, you know, I was like, well, maybe the beds, that, that distribution, bigger bones and the concretion and then little ones above reflected the vertically oriented strata. But then as we dug into it, it looked like this little patch of outcrop had actually was actually oriented horizontally anyway so i was like puzzled as to what was going on why we found that and, and that continued so as they dug they, they found nothing adjacent left or right of the concretion and i only found bones in this vertical distribution small bones up top and then bigger bones down on the bottom and then we were kind of you know we were preparing a jacket Right, we kind of worked our way back into the hill, and it was really kind of just at that late stages where it's like, whoa, there's like this concretion thing, you know, has like a, it's wider here, and then it narrows down, and then on our black back of the quarry wall, you could see that it went up and then over, and it's like, what is going on here? And you could see that then, you know, because we had dug a fresh surface there in the back of the quarry wall, you could see how that the structure you know, cut through the normal strata so that it cut through green and red mudstones and was really distinct. Um, and so there was kind of like this moment like, well, uh, I think this is a burrow and I chopped through most of it at this point. Um, so it was, you know, it was exciting that, I, you know, I, I was like, well, uh, so that was sort of, I didn't really know what we had in the, in the, in the rock. Um, but it looked like it was a burrow, so that was kind of exciting. Um, and then I we jacketed the front part because we had already kind of truncated everything, um, you know, in a plaster jacket to bring that back. But I sent a picture of that um, 
I said to Tony Martin, who's an ignologist at Emory University, and I said, well, what do you think of this? And I didn't give him any explanation. Right. I just sent him a picture and said, well, what's your thoughts on this? Uh, and he was like, well, you know, I'm going to guess that, you know, you, you have a plastic jacket there that must have bones in it. But it's like, it looks like a, a big burrow to me. And he said, well, you know, if it is a burrow, I'd make two predictions. It ought to have like a helical kind of kind of S-shaped structure to it. And you also might find accessory burrows, like little burrows of like commensalate animals that might branch off of it. And so we buried it and then it came back. I don't know when it was, like a month or two months later, he came out uh, and we excavated farther back into the hill. And you could see that structure. It did have an S-shape. It went, it went back and then it turned to the right and then it turned to the left. And, and during that, it was like angling up through the strata. Um, so that was really cool. So, so there was his first prediction. And then we did actually find accessory burrows as well. We found sort of a, a centimeter scale burrow that came off the bottom corner. And then there was a series of smaller structures that came up off the upper portion of the, the second turn. So both of those were fit. I was like, wow, that's really cool that he's kind of made that prediction. And then we actually found mm -hmm. those features in it. Um, yeah. Is that more than you want? No, that's amazing. Yeah, that makes really uh, that's really cool. The, the the prediction matches the the discovery. That's yeah. that'd be rewarding yeah. as well, right? <laughs> what we were saying before about uh, the that long letter U, the the looks like the genus name you gave to Erectodromius was is it Cubicularis or is it Cubicularis? <laughs> Which yeah. yeah, with the long U, yeah. right? Good. <laughs> The, of the den or the lair, if you want to call it, like a cubicle, right? Mm -hmm. Like basically the same root as cubicle, like the little den. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, so that after we prepped it, yeah, we had uh, this smaller nithopod dinosaur, you know, something akin to Ipsilophodonts and related animals. And then it, there was, you know, a lot of adult bones in the, the jacket, but there's also small elements of two juveniles, I call them small juveniles that were in there as well. And then since then we found another another partial burrow that had erectotromous bones in it, not nearly as complete, it really was just an eroded chunk. Uh, and then L.J. Krumenacher, who was a PhD student of mine that works in Idaho, has found a, a burrow structure in the YN formation, equivalent age with erectotromous bones down there. So we had three examples, which is kind of cool, to have trace and body fossils uh, connected. That's really great. Was there, when you went to publish on this, was there academic literature research, like had there been previously previous studies regarding burrowing dinosaurs that you could reference or were you kind of breaking ground on that? Uh, you know, Bob Bakker yeah. had talked about it. Actually, I'd seen a talk of his around 2000 or something at a conference and, and talked about a small anthropod and he said they were articulated, and he didn't have a burrow trace, but he thought that the the nature of the preservation all went together in this group. He thought maybe they they were had had burrowed, and he had he had published it was just one sentence I think or two sentences on on that occurrence. So there wasn't really a description of anything. There had been some suggestion of Heterodontosaurus, I think, estimating okay. based upon. Shed teeth. It was kind of a an interesting argument. 
Yeah, but not much really in the nature of, of burly dinosaurs. Yeah. Do you think that so the- Orodromius is closer to Erythrodromius? Okay. Going, getting back to Egg Mountain or Egg Hill, if you want to call it Egg Mountain, but Orodromius and, and Erythrodromius are closer related. So that's kind of why I gave the name Erythrodromius to kind of parallel Orodromius because mm-hmm. they're sort of. I don't know if they're sister taxa, but they're closely related. They're, they're orodromines. Um, but the idea is that, oh, you know, could, could a orodromius also be burrowing? Um, and so that's kind of where we're, we're headed in, in investigating the egg mountain area for that. There, there are a couple of specimens of, of orodromius, a couple of specimens of orodromius that were weird. I don't know, I call them wadges or whatever, weird like masses of bones. Like it's like a, a femur and then there's the skull bone, you know, like frontals on top of that and there's ribs on top of that and a humerus on top of that, a couple verts piling. It's like this weird wadge of, of bone. And I, and I kind of wanted to look, how do you get bones stacked three or four deep in a small little concentration? And I thought, well, maybe they could get washed in a burrow, piled up in the bottom part. I guess they could get washed against some other object, or maybe they got spat out by some somebody that ate them. A big pellet, yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> but the bones are in really nice shapes. So they didn't really look that way. Anyway, so I yeah. so I had kind of I had this notion after hearing Bob Bacher's talk and these weird masses of orodromius that maybe there could be burrowing dinosaurs in, in Cretaceous rocks in Montana. That's really neat. So do you think that perhaps um, other or more dinosaurs, do you think that burrowing might be more common among dinosaurs of all different types than perhaps we've imagined? Yeah, I think I think so. You know, I think it's important to remember that like Erythrodromius, the name means burrowing runner. Yeah. And I think it's important to remember that this, it's not an animal that lives underground. It has, it has cursorial fast running legs. You know, so it's more like a coyote in the sense that it, it's denning underground, but you know, it's life, it's feeding, all that kind of stuff. It, it's doing above ground. It's, it's just retiring to a to a den. So I imagine that there are lots of dinosaurs potentially that could be that. You know, you think about these dinosaurs in Mongolia, it's in these desert environments. Mm-hmm. You know, you like want to either want to get out of the sun or hide from predators, and you're in sands. It seems like a natural to to potentially den and those kind of, you know, like Cetacosaurus or maybe some Protoceratops. I think there's some people suggesting Protoceratops in the Bay of Den. Mm-hmm. And I can just imagine like with the Heterodontus or teeth and with the Protoceratops, uh, the big beak and the frill that, and even with Ceratopsian horns that they're smaller, that these, if you put your head face out of the burrow that coming in after you would be difficult. Yeah, yeah. Interesting stuff. I like the sound of that. I think it's so neat. It's so strange like, what they must have been doing. It's hard to know. So do you think size might have limited who could or could not have been burrowing? I've heard of some hypotheses on ancient sloths or armadillos in South America that have burrows yeah. that you can walk through, like you and I could just stroll right through, that are 250 feet long. And they I don't think they've conclusively said, oh, yeah, this is what it is. But like they don't know what they could be. Um and we've got dinosaurs like Alvarezsaurids that are, are show that they're very good at digging or could have been. And uh, we've got other things like the Therizinosaurus, which I don't know if they've... I think I heard something about torsional loads on their arms was actually kind of weak. But uh, but we got things that could be... have I don't know. Could have been big, could have been small. Could have been, could have been digging. 
I don't, yeah, <laughs> that, those slot ones are amazing. Those structures, yeah, they all have all those claw marks on the walls. Yeah, those are pretty impressive. I guess it's, I mean, it's a possibility. I don't, I don't really know. I think the challenge would be that it, it seems like it'd be unlikely for those to preserve because most of those sloth things are, you know, there's topography to them today. Mm -hmm. you know, they're not, they're not so old that there's still embankments where the animals have, have dug into the side of the embankment rather than like digging down into the ground. And, and any topographic high is difficult to preserve in a fossil record, right? You have to have the, some burial event that buries the entire thing. Uh, but if an animal digs down into the ground, mm -hmm. then, then they're already in a good spot to be preserved, or the trace be preserved. Yeah. So I think, as, I think as the animals get bigger and bigger, they're less likely to grow down into the ground and so less likely to preserve. So. Feel like we probably are not going to see big animal burrows like the sloths. I mean, it, they could exist, but I think you might have to make that argument based upon yeah. you know, the anatomy or something else. Yeah. I haven't really pondered that, like the maximum size. I mean, protoceratops are pretty big. Yeah. They, you know, animals like to make, most animals they say like to make tight burrows, you know, because that way no one bigger that can. Then you can get inside. Yeah. So if you fit, then you know, okay, anyone else coming, come here has to be smaller or my size. So there's some safety factor to that. For sure. Now, would you guess that if something like a Richterdromius were living in a den or, or sleeping in a den, would they also be nesting, do you think, underground? I think it's quite possible. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you already, Danny, it seems like a, you know, you've got a safe spot already. Why not lay your eggs there? It'd be weird. There are, you know, I, it was new to me, obviously, uh, you know, before I got into burrowing dinosaurs, that, that I'm bringing, you know, there's lots of birds that, that dig burrows to nest in. I, I hadn't noticed that, but like puffins, kingfishers, you know, there's swallows that excavate, you know, hollows into, you know, cliff faces and, and, and hillsides and penguins too that, and you wouldn't think that they'd have the ability to burrow, but they lay their eggs inside that, that nest chamber. Mm -hmm. And even desert tortoises who build a burrow, but inside that burrow, they then lay their eggs in a little excavation within the burrow. Oh. So they, they like bury eggs inside their burrow, which is interesting too. So, you know, I think all those things are potential for, for dinosaurs to be doing that. Yeah, puffins and kingfishers would be news to me, but I know that I've seen lots of owls that seem to do a very good job of digging a little bit. Owls, right? Yeah. 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 The, there's a weird structure we excavated and, and consequently destroyed before <laughs> excavation that occurred at, at, at Egg Mountain. You know, we, so, we, so in these seven years of excavation, we sort of, we would jack, the rock's really hard, so you jackhammer it. We call it a, a jackhammer pass. You go in and jackhammer like, 10 centimeters layer, and then you pick through the rubble, and then do it again across the quarry floor. Um, but there was one, there was a couple quads, like meter in our meters grid system, that had a weird shape initially, some like limestone feature. And then as we went down there, we found these bumpy eggshell, bumpy eggshell, you know, we go down, you know, 10 centimeters, 30 centimeters, still finding lots of bumpy eggshell. 
we got one bumpy egg from that area. And there were some partial eggs too. So it seems like there was like a, a vertical, you know, distribution of these eggs. And then it was sort of a quasi concretionary, going back to these concretes, like, is that anything? I never really could convince myself that it was a burrow, but but I I kind of wonder if I could have, you know, scanned the whole hillside before we excavated, would I think otherwise? Some of the egg material was outside that structure. So it seems kind of weird, but you know, there's soil processes could move things around. So I don't know what that <laughs> Interesting. Well, yeah. It's, it's one of those things you go, hmm, I'll have to think about that next time. Yeah. I mean, we have other we have other nest traces associated with those bumpy eggs that that are not burrow related. So, uh, but it it was kind of weird. Yeah. Sounds crazy. All right, now I know that uh, your work with dromaeosaurs would be totally different than uh, what you would be doing with Erectodromius stuff. I see that in Montana that there are a couple different species of dromaeosaur that have been named, and um, certainly there aren't any Velociraptors, but there appear to be some that are similar. And it looks like you've had a lot of success with the, the with the Truodon. To, I guess to start off, if I were to ask, uh, how informative is what we know of, or what is known about a Truodon transferable to what it, you would expect of a Velociraptor? Are they related closely enough, or what would be what would they share in common, and maybe what would be different about them? Yeah, I mean they're both they're both theropod dinosaurs. They're both close to the ancestry of birds. They. They are typically put in separate families, the Troodontidae and the Dromaeosauridae. Um, the, the relationship between birds, Troodontids, and Dromaeosaurids has kind of, I would say, is still in a little bit of flux. For a long time, Troodontids and Dromaeosaurids were, were placed as sister taxa, the Deinonychosauria was the group, and that was the sister taxon to birds. But now people are beginning to, to move troodontids closer to birds in a couple studies or put birds inside of troodontids, mm -hmm. which is kind of interesting. So, I mean, they're both, both pretty derived, pretty, you know, share some bird-like features. You know, they both have the, the retractable second toe claw, which is big in dromaeosaurids, but fairly modest in Troodontids by comparison. I mean, it's big relative to their other claws, mm -hmm. but um, it's not as fearsome looking as a Velociraptor or some of the other dromosaurs, you know, where it's really, it's really narrow. And, I don't know. I always feel like they're kind of impressive, even in a small animal. It's like, oh, that looks, mm -hmm. you know, if it had a shape on it, you'd be like, ah, that looks kind of scary. You know? mm -hmm. uh, I mean, their foot structures are very different. Okay. Even though I always feel like Velociraptor. Uh, you know, it's like so so fast, but they really have chunky feet. Okay. I don't think they're, um, they might be better accelerators, whereas Troodontids actually have this elongate foot. The, the metatarsus is quite elongated. It's more, you know, it's more akin to a deer. If you've ever seen the cannon bone of a deer, you know, they're both running around on two toes with that second toe retracted, so it's three and four that they're running on. But, but Dromaeosaurs really have like this compact kind of chunky foot. And troodontids have a more elongated one. I kind of feel like, you know, the one might be better as a predator, like running after, like accelerating after something, velociraptors. Mm -hmm. Whereas troodontids might be better at covering longer distances more efficiently, like like a deer or something like that. So, like, well, they're going to move around a lot. 
and, and it just makes sense to have an efficient team. Whereas the lost rockets, like they might not move around as much, but then they might want to accelerate after something. Okay. That's, that's kind of my, my take on their feet. Um, I like your team. They, <laughs> they both have kind of like, you know, avian-like brains. People have talked about their, you know, encephalization quotient, their brain, the body mass is, is high, you know, the highest among dinosaurs. Maybe you can get some other smaller smaller theropods too that might be higher. But, you know, they're sort of on the high end of braininess for the theropod dinosaurs. So maybe you can help me out with the, the latest status on Truodon, because I've heard that it's, you know, over the years uh, been kind of described as just a tooth taxa or that it's dubious yeah. species or that it's the smartest dinosaur ever known. Uh, also that, you know, given enough time, it would evolve into a green person. And uh, if its <laughs> career ambitions were to conduct an educational train ride through the Mesozoic, uh, through time tunnels in the dinosaur train. So Truodon has been depicted a lot of different ways. What, uh, <laughs> going from almost mythical to, to, uh, um, very well expected to be, you know, a genius dinosaur. So where does it stand presently? <laughs> uh, the nomenclature, I guess we'll start there. Is, okay. Is, uh, so we have a paper. Uh, I just sent in the the revisions, I guess it was uh, Friday, so just like five days ago, on Troodon. We argue that we should keep the name, that the name has been good, you know. You know, for a long period of time it was not used, Phil Curry sort of reestablished it in 1987. I've been following that. And then he's kind of, uh, kind of wandered away from that with uh, Van der Leest and Curry kind of, kind of officially kind of sunk it in 2017 and said, oh no, we should use Stenonychosaurus inequalis as a proper name. And we're like, well, we have been using it. It's familiar to the public. We gotta stick with it and we're, we're proposing that that we're going to uh, present a neotype, basically get rid of the tooth, the single tooth that describes it, and replace it with this material from a bone bed called Jack's Birthday Site, where we have multiple individuals of Troodon, and we have most of the skeleton. You know, we have skull parts and forelimb and hindlimb and tail and vertebral column stuff. So we're saying that that ought to be the neotype, and we'll just attach the name to that. And go with that. Part of that reason is that Stenonychosaurus, the type specimen of that, is terrible too. It's it's a foot. It only is a foot. And when first described, they got the anatomy wrong because it was so poorly preserved. So one of the distinctive features is how the metatarsus fit, how these metatarsals fit together. And Sternberg, who described it in 1932, depicted it completely wrong because it was just a trashed foot. So there aren't any, you know, they, they, people don't like the tooth because it's like not diagnostic, but neither is Denonychosaurus type. That's also not diagnostic. So to replace it with another non-diagnostic thing is, is not a bad path to go. So we feel like, oh, let's just name, we'll just call this stuff from Montana, Trodon, and go with that. So that's what we're proposing. All right. Well, so we kind of hope to maintain stability in the name. So that, you know, kids grow up and say, oh, I thought Troodon ran the train. It's like, <laughs> yes, yeah. and here's what Troodon looks like. Yeah. Well, I hope that, uh, I hope that works out. I like to hang on to Troodon too. Yeah, me too. Yeah. 
So I saw a paper, it came out, I don't know how long ago, but feels like it was recently, it was describing a reconstruction of a particular oviraptorid nest, and the reconstruction was kind of like, it depicted it almost like an arena. There was like an open space in the middle, and then there were rows of eggs encircling that empty space, kind of going up, and they were all kind of leaning in towards the center. But the paper was very clear that this only described the nesting habit of that particular oviraptorid. You found truodon nests or egg clutches. How would you describe what the, the truodons uh, egg clutch would be like compared to, to something like that. Yeah, there, there, there's some similarities, but also some clear differences. So like oviraptor eggs, uh, trodon eggs are elongate, you know, right? So you can't think of a chicken egg. You have to like stretch it out. If, if you could see me, I would, I usually use my forearm as a trodon egg. It has a pointy end. That's my elbow. Mm -hmm. And one end, that's my fist at the top of the egg. And so the trodon clutches are weird in that the pointy ends are buried in the ground. They're sort of quasi-vertical or sloped, you know, 45 degrees to near vertical. So the pointy ends, my elbows, and you plant both your elbows in the ground and then lean your hands in so the fists meet at the center. That's sort of the start of a trodon clutch. So it's uh, uh, these elongate eggs that kind of lean in towards the center of the clutch. Typically, there's not really a hollow, an empty space in the middle like an overwrapper. Overwrapper eggs are much more shallowly angled, if that's a word, more shallowly angled, and, and they have that kind of donut hole in the center. It's kind of like a ring of eggs, whereas trodons are kind of more tightly packed. Where So we have one good clutch of 24 eggs, so pretty much there's all, all egg contact of the top parts in top view. But if you looked at the bottom view, they're flaring out, right? Because those bottoms are kind of angling. They're angling in towards the top. And so in bottom view, they're angling out. Yeah. So I kind of feel like the, the difference there is I think in the overraptors, you know, they have those beautiful specimens, the adults, you know, positioned inside the, the hollow ring, donut hole. Troy mm. um, on is more sitting on those eggs with its belly on top of the eggs in a, in a more tight, a tight arrangement of, of the eggs. That's pretty interesting to think of like the different ways they might have sat and uh, whether yeah. or not they would be on them. And, and we know the egg shape is so strong. We learned that in like elementary school that, you know, the, the shape of an egg is built to be, to be strong. When they become elongate, um, do they retain some of that uh, that bioengineering that keeps them firm? Or, or do you find, what, what have you learned about how the shape affects them? Yeah, there was a Chinese paleontologist, Zhao, uh, if I get his name correct, that did look at that, some of the engineering aspects uh, of the eggs, uh, of Asian troodontid eggs, um, and thought that they were better in, in compression, that that vertical aspect would lend them strength, you know, because you're sort of going down a long axis of the egg, yeah, so that they would be strong that way. It's weird. Construction. I mean, I think egg clutches are really cool in that they're a body fossil and a trace fossil, right? The eggs themselves are body fossils, right? They reflect, you know, the production of the, of the mom, but also like the environment in which the embryo is going to develop. But then the arrangement, right? That's the that's the trace how the animals built that clutch. So I think they're really cool to think about, you know, how. How an overraptor trodon could or couldn't manipulate eggs, and they gotta stack these things in the ground or prepare the ground. Mm -hmm. There's like 
a fair amount of like construction going on to build these things, right? If you're going to have eggs in the overwrapping clutch that are like three layer deep mm-hmm. or putting elongate eggs into the ground, you know, like, it's like, how would you do that? Yeah. That is really interesting because the, the yeah. other idea was too, that they don't lay 24 eggs at once that uh-huh. they come back and they'll add more over a period of time. And you're right. They, they remain in that formation. So how do they, you're right. Are they using their mouth or their hands or what are they using? Are they just squatting right there? Like, how do they get it in that shape? That's so yeah. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. The, the dexterity they must be using. That's so weird. Uh, <laughs> I, Maybe you can answer this. So in Jurassic Park, uh, just as a, I guess as a point of conversation, uh, Jurassic Park, the the Velociraptor is hatched in the hatchery while they are going on the tour, and in particular, they say that the Velociraptor does not have egg teeth, unlike most of the other animals that are at the park. And so this, for whatever reason, they said, you know, the snout of the Velociraptor was long and narrow enough that it was uh, sufficient to uh, escape the egg without uh, having an egg tooth. Did you find in Truodons, have you been able to find in the eggs and see their teeth and see if there's anything like that to, to, inf- yeah. Uh, an egg tooth. Yeah, there's, there, you know, an egg tooth is like a keratinous structure on the tip of snout to some animals. There, there's a paper, I forget about some sauropod that's thought to have an egg tooth. The one embryo that I've looked at for Truodons, we have. There's, a cl- there's one clutch of Troodon eggs that has embryos, but they're in various states of weathering and, and preservation. So I haven't seen anything in that specimen. There's not much to see. But we do have a, a synchrotron scan of a Troodon embryo, same clutch, but in that, in that egg, it has a pretty complete skull. So that's something maybe, maybe there's stuff there. I don't know. I, I haven't yet. I have to go... Hopefully, in the next you know half year, visit with my colleagues. And Mark Kuntrap is the person that scanned it and, and did the three D rendering. So we're we're planning to work in uh, in February, March on that specimen. So maybe maybe that's something we need to look for. Interesting. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, there, there aren't any dromaeosauric embryos as yet, so um, oh. that's a, <laughs> Fair a unknown territory. You know, there's only there's really only a couple dromaeosaur eggs. Um, Gerald Grelatiner and Pete McAfee described that egg material um, that was found in association with Deinonychus, so out in eastern Montana. Um, and that, that was this egg that was collected by John Ostrom and company long ago. And it was found pressed against some belly ribs in Australia. Uh, but it hadn't been described, you know, it was kind of in the collections and collected, but nothing had been. Uh, mentioned about it. And I think there are partial, a couple of partial eggs, plus this one near complete egg that's in that, against the Australia. The question was like, oh, did it eat the eggs? Are they on the inside of the belly ribs <laughs> or on the outside? So Grolatiner and, and, and Makovicki thought that they, it was clearly on the outside. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, kind of say, well, why would it be on the outside of these eggs? And that maybe this animal like the overraptors on top of the egg clutches and Mongolia might have been brooding its clutch as well. Mm-hmm. So that's our small window into dromaeosaurid, you know, anything close to velociraptor nesting behavior is really built on those those eggs. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's so that much. We don't really have a full clutch. You know, we just have this like interesting hint of belly ribs attack. You know, it's just one little yeah. specimen. 
yes. and, and the egg and its ribs attached to it. It's so. interesting. I know that uh, I've seen videos of birds and they swallow things that are astonishing. <laughs> They're able to just open their mouth and they get thing and they kick things back. Um, but yeah. and I'd like to think, oh, maybe a dinosaur could just swallow any. Like who knows? They probably could just yeah. take a hunk of who knows what, and they got it down without any trouble. But with uh, with the difference between obviously a, a you know a dinosaur and, and a and, and a modern bird is that they have these teeth and so I'd like to think that they'd do some chewing <laughs> that they wouldn't just inhale an uh -huh. egg without without right. taking a bit of a bite so I would like to think that yeah. that was on the outside of the belly <laughs> if you uh, got teeth yeah, I'd like to think you were using them I think there, I think there are arguments I guess I, I, I'd agree with the arguments too that it was on the outside so I know that uh, in the in the novel uh, they're talking about much more about the Myasaura it was in the late 80s and so uh, there hadn't been a lot of uh, theropod eggs or carnivorous eggs uh, identified at that point as carnivorous anyhow and so uh, the idea was how did the, the myosaurs nest in the novel and there was this idea that they were out on some little island protected and they wallowed out into this thing and on that nest they would put the vegetation and things like that on top of the nest to incubate it there wasn't a belief that the hadrosaurs were sitting on the nest uh, that sounds reasonable but Maybe Truodons are doing something entirely different. Do you think that they were sitting on top? Do you think they might have been putting vegetation on top of the nest? What do you think of uh, a dromaeosaurid nest? Yeah. Uh, so a Tronon, you know, we have a nesting trace, mm -hmm. which is kind of a, sort of like a bowl-shaped structure and a, and a rim, very clear rim around it. Uh, and then the eggs are in the center of this sort of shallow bowl. So there's a fair amount of separation between the rim and the, and the, and the eggs themselves. And then the sediment changed between, you know, what covered the bottom of the eggs and what covered the top of the eggs. And that's a pattern that Jack Horner had observed in other Chodon clutches, um, that sometimes the bottoms were in one type of sediment and then the other, and then the, the upper part in a different one. Um, so, I mean, you could say, well, that, you know, they could bury them or they could be covering vegetation or they could be sitting on them. I kind of feel like based upon the nest structure, I'd move towards them sitting on them. Um, but then we looked at porosity in the eggs. So one way to measure whether eggs are buried or, or exposed is by their porosity. So it's a pretty clear separation among modern animals where animals that bury their eggs, you know, they're in this, this enclosed environment. It's very humid. They tend to have lots of pores because um, it's hard to get oxygen in and CO2 out. It's like, you know, you're in this kind of, you know, enclosed environments where gas exchange is hard, whereas bird eggs that are exposed tend to have very low porosity. And actually, there are a few examples that cross-cut the taxonomy. So there are birds that bury their eggs, like some megapodes, and they have high-porosity eggs. And there's some geckos that sort of tuck their eggs, you know, uh, you know, in cracks in a tree trunk or, you know, under leaves so that they're exposed. And they also have low so it's not just a, a bird reptile thing, but a, a, a exposed eggs versus buried eggs, mm -hmm. low porosity versus high porosity. So Trodon is very much low porosity, and I think that's a really strong argument that, that the eggs were exposed. And now, I also watched a presentation on YouTube that you gave in, I think, 2018 on Truodons, and uh, you had a very interesting interpretation of how to determine whether the male or a female Truodon might have been brooding over the nest. What do you recall from that, and uh, how, how would you come to decide, if you were to guess, uh, was it the male or the female taking care of the animals? What do you think, uh, how did you come to what conclusions you had there? 
Yeah, so it was sort of a, uh, it's a sort of a number crunching modeling approach. Mm-hmm. Um, my colleague Jason Moore would, could answer this better. Um, but the initial thinking is looking at the egg clutch themselves compared to body size. The clutches are big. You know, if you think about the mass of all the eggs, so we have 22 eggs, 24 eggs, and the biggest clutches. And so whether you use a, a reptile model or a bird model, they're still big. They're like two to three times, maybe four times bigger than you predict for the troodon body mass, right? If you model it as a reptile or you model it as a bird, it's a big clutch. So that's kind of weird. So that's kind of where we started from. It's like, well, what's the going on there? And so really it's kind of collecting all this data on egg clutch volume and body mass and, and plugging it into a phylogenetic distribution and crunching the numbers and how best to model it with parental care strategies. And the most favored, the most likely scenario is that um, it would be paternal care, male-only care of the eggs. And part of that, you can think about that, is if the female is producing lots of eggs, you know, you know like her, you get these big clutches because the females are just generating eggs. They don't have to sit on the eggs, they don't have to care for the young, all that, their, their job is just to make eggs. Um, and so you can get bigger and bigger clutches because that's what they're, that's what they're doing. And the male has all the responsibility for brooding them. So that's kind of what it boils down to. Is you, have mm-hmm. extra, you have these particularly large clutches in troodontids and oviraptors. That best seems to fit a model where multiple females would contribute to a clutch and then the male would have the responsibility of brooding. So, you know, it's a hypothesis. Mm-hmm. It, it's something that has to get, you know, you like to test it from other angles. And there are other people that are kind of investigating that. Surayong had some arguments about maybe multiple females expressed in, in some of the egg clutches of oviraptors. Like maybe there's some differences between the eggs. Uh, a study like that. that sheds light on the idea that with paleontology, it, you get the, the specimens and you look at them and you interpret them and you, I guess, describe them. But when it comes to answering questions... Uh, you need to come up with models that are going to provide results that help you support a th- an argument in one way or another. Coming up with what you need to s- analyze and gathering that data, that part it must be the real, the real hard, you know, head scratching, hard part of paleontology is how do you build models or, and testable uh-huh. ideas <laughs> and then gather what kind of data? Like, how do you, because these questions are so hard and, uh, yeah, I mean, we had other data in there, but they proved not to be relevant. You know what I mean? Like they didn't show up with any kind of care strategies. It's like, yeah, mm-hmm. that doesn't matter. Um, the other attribute that we looked at that was important was the nature of the hatchlings. Are they altricial, mm-hmm. like nest out, or are they precocial, um, where they sort of hatch out of the nest and kind of can run on their own? So Troodon is on the precocial spectrum. So that, that actually was an important part, too, that maybe you'd get a different care strategy if the young were altricial and nest bound. Really interesting. Yeah, but I, I forget what the other factors were. Um, individual egg size or some other things. And they, they proved, you know, they didn't they didn't matter. They didn't they didn't have any correlation with nesting strategies. Yeah. So in some ways, you know, these you, everything's written in R these days. It's like the the um, you can throw in multiple variables you know without like you know, saying, well, this could be important. I will throw that in. This might be important too. And so then you can kind of let the 
the modeling to sort out which ones actually seem to, to relate to um, whatever attribute you're hunting down. I was just going to say, it's, oh. a, it's imaginative, yeah. interesting work. I don't know how you guys come up with uh, these studies, but yeah, it's fascinating. I love reading them, that's for sure. <laughs> so we don't really have clutches for Velociraptor or Pinosaurus, mm-hmm. you know, so that's why we're, we don't really know, you know, like, and it could very well be very different. You know, maybe they had, you know, produced three eggs and, and you know, both parents took care of them or and the female took care of them. We really don't know anything about them. So um, that's sort of a wide open Questions to you know, would a velociraptor? How would a velociraptor care for its eggs or young? Or yeah, those are those are really big unknowns. Hmm. Well, interesting things to consider. I know that uh, uh, in the novel it was set in 1989. Grant discovers a never-before-seen infant velociraptor, and he identifies it by its jaw and dentition. He just sees. We're told that it's uh, it's the size of a, of a of a rose thorn or something like that is the the specimen he's looking oh. at, uh, but he identifies it as Velociraptor right away, and he believes that there must be other evidence around the area that uh, will inform you know how smaller carnivores in that locality it, how they were raising things. And it was his dream to study infant rearing behavior in carnivorous dinosaurs, uh, and that was the whole reason he wanted to go down into this velociraptor nest at the end of the at the end of the book as well i think he disguises it as we have to be responsible and go count these eggs but uh he really just wanted to go check out these dinosaurs because that's his dream come true but uh yeah it sounds like you get to live alan grant's dream so that's kind of (laughs) neat i mean you know i guess i would say you know you know jack horner that was his motivating process was to understand dinosaurs and biology and that's that's why i wanted to like come study under him was to to kind of pursue those same kind of questions. So that's, mm-hmm. uh, I kind of feel like fortunate in that I've had that opportunity and uh, both kind of in an academic sense, but also from a specimen sense, like, oh, we found this, you know, we found a troodon on top of eggs or a troodon nest. So I've sort of had those chances from the geologic or specimen base to sort of investigate those nests, mm-hmm. those kind of questions as well. That's amazing stuff. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. I uh, really appreciate all the time that you've been able to share and uh, and all the insights on on this particular stuff. Because, like I said, it, you're a perfect fit for this particular chapter. So it's been uh, it's been really great having you. Oh, thank you very much. Thanks for having the interest in stuff oh, we do. Oh, definitely, definitely. All right, a great big thank you to Dr. David Vericchio. Thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Got to learn a lot in that one. That was good. Um, this week text. This week's text is Descent, spanning from pages 384 to 390. In a synopsis, Gennaro is forced down the rabbit hole where they land in the raptor nest. It's filled with dozens of raptors of of various ages. Grant supposes there have been multiple generations born on the island, and then uh, get to counting the the eggshells, but are ultimately distracted by the animals' conspicuous and unusual behavior. Why are they all lining up in this unusual northeast-southwest formation? Then the raptors sprint out of the nest and into the darkness beyond. Alright, characters. Donald Gennaro, he's terrified and can't imagine what has gotten into Sattler and Grant to convince them that it's such a good idea to go down into the raptor nest on 384. Gennaro rejects the idea that he's going down that hole and tells Muldoon, you can't make me on 385. Gennaro's horrified. He's sweating, feeling lightheaded, ultimately deciding to go down headfirst, facing the unknown head-on. 
He falls through the rabbit hole, symbolically traverses a birthing canal, and is birthed into the raptor nest where Sattler and Grant are waiting for him on 386. He's terrified at the sight of so many raptors in this underground chamber. Gennaro saves Sattler's life in this in this chapter. Uh, Grant was going to use nerve gas to kill the raptors and save themselves, but Gennaro indicates that if he uses the gas, Sattler isn't wearing her gas mask on 388. Uh, Gennaro tries to help solve the raptor behavior problem by using his compass that beneath uh, that's beneath the face of his watch. On 389, uh, he got it for his birthday from his wife, and he observes the raptors are lining up in a northeast-southwest orientation on 390. Ellie Sattler. Sattler squeezes herself down through the rabbit hole despite Gennaro's protestation on 384. She admits she, quote, probably is crazy to do this and slips down the hole. When Gennaro drops in, she inspects him to see if he's all right and introduces him to the raptor nest. Uh, She caresses Gennaro's face when inspecting him, which is odd because Gennaro's supposed to be wearing a gas mask and is unusually... And it's, you know, unusually sensual, right? Maybe she enjoyed his attention during their Jeep ride back to the visitor center with Dr. Harding earlier, remember? To caress isn't like a medical examination. A caress is a soft touch, done gently and lovingly. It's a strange moment for Zattler here. And it follows. As she, uh, she asks Grant if she should remove the transmitter collar from Clarence, the white rap, uh, the juvenile velociraptor. And when Grant says it's all right, just do it quickly, her answer is Okay. With, uh, with extra emphasis on that ooh part. Uh, perhaps we haven't spent much time with Sadler, and so we don't know her very well, but this character down here in the raptor nest is not behaving consistently with, uh, you know, who climbed down the rabbit hole earlier. This raptor is uh, chafing behind the collar and whimpering. And recall earlier in the novel, Sadler entered into the role as a nurse for Malcolm, and perhaps that endearing quality to ease pain is extending into this moment too. Quote, Ellie petted the little juvenile trying to soothe it to silence its whimpering. On 387. Uh, let's be clear, they've already discussed that the island is going to be carpet bombed by the Costa Ricans. In fact, uh, they're in a rush to do this count before that happens. The correct answer is leave the little animal alone. In an hour or so, it won't matter if there's a collar on the damn thing or not. Uh, but she pulls the Velcro, which startles the adult raptors, and they're in trouble now on 388. As well, she's the only one down here not wearing a gas mask. And so when the adult raptor comes to inspect the sound, Grant cannot use the nerve gas they have brought down for protection without also gassing Sattler on 388. Robert Muldoon. Muldoon stands by the Jeep, and he's not going to let Gennaro avoid going down the hole on 384. Muldoon threatens to prod Gennaro with a shock stick if he doesn't go down. Quote, almost never fatal, generally knocks you flat, perhaps loosens your bowels, but it doesn't usually have any permanent effect, at least not on dinos says Muldoon on 385. It's coercion, and it's probably a crime, but Muldoon does it, and he stands by the jeep, overseeing Gennaro, ensuring he'll do what he's told, large and impassive. If only he'd been this observant and demanding with everyone else in the park uh, he was meant to be overseeing, (laughs) they may have been better prepared for any hiccups when uh, when they showed up during this weekend. Dr. Alan Grant. Grant is wearing a gas mask and is equipped with an ammunition belt armed with gas grenades, a shock prod, and night vision goggles. Grant inspects Gennaro uh, once he arrives to see if he's all right when the lawyer first lands in the raptor nest on 386, and upon observing the raptors, declares that this is a colony and identifies that it's led by four to six adult raptors, the rest being juveniles and infants. He estimates two hatchings one last year and one this year. Grant is uncertain why the velociraptors aren't attacking them and believes it may be because there are no eggs at the present moment, making them more relaxed on 387. He's ready to do the count. Uh, When the raptors are alerted to the sound of Velcro ripping, Grant leads them all to be 
leads them all to be calm on 388. As the raptors approach, he plans to deploy the nerve gas to save themselves, but Gennaro stops him because Sattler isn't wearing her gas mask. And Sattler and Grant work together to count the raptors versus the eggs and try to estimate if there are any raptors who have escaped the island on 389. We, uh, we continue to have Clarence. Uh, he's the four-month-old juvenile chameleon velociraptor. Uh, he returns to Ellie and has its transmitter collar removed on 387. And then we have the rest of the velociraptors. The raptors in the nest are close and are dark green with brownish tiger stripes, standing upright, balancing on their stiff, extended tails. They're totally silent with watchful, large, dark eyes. Their behavior is, quote, edgy, and they jerk their heads up and down, snorting impatiently on 386. Uh, and the babies chirp and climb over the adults on 387. Uh, there were three nests, attended by three sets of parents, with the division of territory centered roughly around the nests, uh, although the offspring seem to overlap and run into different territories on 387. The adults are benign with the young ones and tougher with the juveniles, occasionally snapping at the older animals when their play got too rough. When sensing for an intruder in the nest, the raptors sense with their tongues and the juveniles all have distinct snout markings on 389. During the egg count, the super important mission they're on to see if they can estimate if any velociraptors have escaped the island, they stop what they're doing to ponder over the animals' behavior. Is it species-specific behavior for identification purposes? Maybe they're listening. Maybe it hasn't any broader meaning. Maybe they're just weird. Maybe a form of communication. They can't figure out what these dinosaurs are doing. All right, we have localities. The rabbit hole. This is in the southern southern fields and continues to be described as a rabbit hole in 384. The tunnel down, the tunnel down narrows to a great and distressing tightness and then opens up again, goes upwards a little, and then tilts downward, becoming wider, and the surface becomes rougher, then concrete, then cold air hits, and it opens up into a concrete room. The raptor nest. It's cold. It's like a cave, and it's dark. It's uh, filled with gleaming green eyes from the raptors. Our protagonists are perched on a concrete ledge, a kind of embankment, about seven feet above the floor, and they're uh, behind a series of large steel junction boxes that provide shelter from the raptors' vision. There are two adults and dozens of juveniles, and this is located in a, quote, enormous underground structure that's man-made with seams of poured concrete on 386. The nubs of steel rods protrude, and it's vast, and there's an echo. There are perhaps upwards of 30 raptors in here, and the nest's themselves are made out of mud and straw on 388 we're told uh, formed into a broad shallow basket shape with about 14 eggs all right stylistic techniques we uh we have creighton using italics relaxed on 387 says Gennaro, perhaps sarcastically or ironically observing that the raptors are more relaxed while he himself is in a bladder emptying panic. Uh, the exclamation mark encourages that we don't accept this as face value, that he's not relaxed, despite the suggestion that the raptors are relaxed. Uh, the italics also intonate that he speaks the words perhaps in a whisper, uh, one of those shout whispers, which would be in keeping with the moment. Uh, so it's a good use of italics. And when Sattler tears the Velcro strap on the transmitter collar, the noise brings the attention of the adult velociraptors and general swears in italics as well on 388. Uh, Creighton uses colons, quote, and within this vast echoing space were many animals, colon, Gennaro guessed at least 30 raptors on 386, and here the colon is introducing the consequential, astonishing, terrifying quantity of velociraptors that are in this little cave. Uh, ellipses, quote, and there aren't any eggs at the moment, ellipsis, makes them more relaxed on 387, says Grant, and the ellipsis is a pause here where he's making a guess as to why they may be more relaxed. It almost reads like the first statement is an observation, and then there is a pause, and then he offers his hypothesis. Uh, next, it's pretty dark, ellipsis, on 389, says Grant trailing off as if he's trying to observe something specific and is waiting for it to come into focus. Maybe there's a breeze 
ellipsis, he adds, trying to make sense of the spatial positioning of the raptors in the nest, trailing off with the ellipsis as if he were waiting for inspiration to strike. And this continues as they're observing the raptors. They're not lined up according to anything. Ellipsis. I guess they're sort of northeast-southwest, something like that, on 390. Maybe they're hearing something, turn their heads so they can hear. Ellipsis, adds Ellie. So the ellipsis here is them kind of trailing off, pausing, and taking a beat. M dashes. They're used as parentheses in this chapter a few times. Quote, Gennaro climbed backward into the hole, but he began to feel too frightened to continue that way. M dash. The idea of backing into the unknown filled him with dread. M dash. So at the last minute, he turned around and climbed headfirst into the hole, extending his arms forward and kicking his feet because at least he would see where he was going on 385. So the concept that an idea fills him with dread is to be read concurrently with the rest of his efforts here. Uh, and it's very similar to this next sequence. Quote, and suddenly he was rushing forward, sliding into blackness, seeing the dirt walls disappear in, into darkness before him, and then the walls became narrower, M-dash, much narrower, M-dash, terrifyingly narrow, M-dash, and he was lost in the pain of a squeezing compression that became steadily worse and worse, that crushed out the air of his lungs, and he was only dimly aware that the tunnel was tilted slightly upward along the path, shifting his body, leaving him gasping and seeing spots before his eyes, and the pain was extreme on 385. Here, the par parenthetical comments share Gennaro's panic, while the narrative continues uninterrupted. Uh, and for the sake of pacing and, and raising the tension, the, the M-dashes are used really well in this way. Quote, As his eyes adjusted, Gennaro could see now that they were in some kind of an enormous underground structure, but it was man-made. M-dash. There were seams of poured concrete on 386. And here, the M-dash almost serves as a semicolon, perhaps less formally than, that, than one of those. It certainly helps to extend this lengthy sentence in a way that keeps it from feeling like, like a run-on sentence. But Alan, M-dash. Do you notice anything funny about them? On 389, asks Sattler of how the raptors are behaving. The M-dash here isn't a pause. It's as if she's forming a thought, almost as if this were more like a polite interruption to Grant's counting. Exclamations. You're crazy to do that! Exclamation mark. On 384, exclaims Gennaro, becoming more robust in his denials to go down into the raptor nest. The exclamation illustrates how his protests are becoming stronger. Two raptors! Exclam exclamation mark. On 386, the exclamation illustrates Gennaro's terror, and also that his terror is rightly placed. <laughs> this is an exceptional circumstance. And then there's lots of tension that's uh, written into this chapter, too. The raptor nest is filled with tension, and Crichton relies on how horrifying the raptors had been earlier in the novel to carry this tension, because they don't do anything especially menacing in this chapter. But the proximity to these raptors is scary. Earlier, Crichton would implicate seeing the scales, seeing the claws, seeing the curved claw on the toe, smelling the awful order to... to you know, relate how close they are to them, but he does none of that in this chapter now. Uh, now it's just that the raptors may spot them, and then they'd be surrounded and defenseless, but it's done well, and when the Velcro sound alerts the adult raptor, and they're very close to discovering the intruders in the nest, the tension is very high, and then it's released, which is nice sometimes too. Uh, literary techniques. Uh, we have a metaphor. Gennaro looked back at the hole at the black opening a mouth in the earth. On 385, this gives the hole a dangerous agency, similar to the animals they've been escaping this whole weekend, like it might bite or swallow him. All right, what else we got here in our discussion section? We can talk about the timeline. Grant estimates that there have been two raptor hatchings, one about four months ago, that would be April 1989, and the other sometime back in 1988. That's what we're told in, on page 386. All right, here's our allusions and references. All right, we're finally going to get up... Uh, get to the Alice's Adventures in Wonderland discussion. Uh, we can sum up all of our Wonderland references and see what it might mean for our reading of Jurassic Park. First, let's collect 
all our observations together and look at them as a whole. So first we have uh, a scene from episode 16, the chapter Malcolm. Crichton evokes the tale of Alice's adventures in Wonderland very early in the novel. Ian Malcolm introduces himself as, quote, mad as a hatter on page 72, specifically referencing the famous Mad Hatter character from the, from the book. Quote, a man of strong opinion, says Hammond, and mad as a hatter, Malcolm self-identifies cheerfully. <laughs> Uh, our second mention here uh, is from episode 19, uh, the chapter called Jurassic Park, with the idea of the Mad Hatter mentioned within 10 pages of the second reference. The narrative jumps into the portal fantasy popularized by Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. Quote, they moved into a green tunnel of overarching palms leading toward the main visitor building. Everywhere extensive and elaborate planting emphasized the feeling that they were entering a new world, a prehistoric tropical world, and leaving the normal world behind on page 83. In Lewis Carroll's narrative, the rabbit hole, quote, went straight on like a tunnel for some way and then dipped down on page two of Alice's Adventures of Wonderland. So this tunnel imagery is consistent with the rabbit hole theme that we have uh, coming together. And this interpretation is strengthened and encouraged by subsequent Wonderland allusions in the text. This is surely employing the portal fantasy of which Alice's Adventures of Wonderland is famous for, where following the white rabbit transports you to a new world. Our next uh, bit here is from episode 42, Control. Uh, we have the White Rabbit object. This obviously is a reference to Lewis Carroll's White Rabbit and Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. But the White Rabbit is sort of a MacGuffin that draws Alice into an adventure through Wonderland. This was Nedry's idea of a joke in the book. This command opened up universal access throughout the park. All the barriers and control mechanisms were shut down so Nedry could gain access to embryos and escape to the East Dock for the sake of Biosyn's corporate espionage. In the novel, the truer avatar for the White Rabbit trope is the Procomsignathus remains discovered at the beginning of the novel, which compels Gennaro to wrangle a team of consultants to investigate Hammond's Island. They follow those compy remains to the island where they are transported into the New World, just like Alice following the White Rabbit. Our next is from the chapter Under Control, episode 59. In episode 59, Under Control, the white rabbit motif returns. Recall, we had a juvenile velociraptor that looks at Grant and Sattler through veils of steam, and it scampers away on 377, and Ellie asks if it's, quote, leading us on. Then, later, quote, it really did seem to be leading them on. The raptor appears playful, so much so that Sattler recalls how the raptors had appeared playful when she was... Be, uh, you know, distracting them at the fence in the chapter return. Uh, and this little velociraptor Clarence is another white rabbit luring them forward to the raptor nest. In Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, Alice follows the white rabbit down a large rabbit hole under the hedge, thus leading her on to her adventures in Wonderland. The white rabbit has since become a trope of MacGuffin-esque quality, which drives people forward through the plot of the story. In this case, the juvenile velociraptor is literally going to lead Grant, Sattler, and Gennaro down a large velociraptor hole into who knows what adventures may follow. Uh, they follow the little raptor across the southern fields, leaving the volcanic fields behind them, nearing the beach. And when they reach the hole, it's said to be, again, like a rabbit hole on 378. And then here we are in the chapter Descent, episode 61. Here, Gennaro's plunged down the rabbit hole. It's not called a velociraptor hole, it's not called a den, it's called the rabbit hole and is continuing to be referred as a rabbit hole. Recall, we've been led to this hole by a juvenile male bred in the park chameleon velociraptor wearing a transmitter on a collar, and this is an avatar for the white rabbit of Alice's Adventures in Wonderland as well. The fall through the rabbit hole in Alice's Adventures in Wonderland goes as follows. The rabbit hole went straight on like a tunnel for some way, then dipped suddenly down, so suddenly that Alice had not a moment to think about stopping herself before she found herself falling down what seemed to be a very deep well. And then she falls for an absurd and comical length of time. In Jurassic Park, Gennaro's descent is similar. 
Quote, and suddenly he was rushing forward, sliding into blackness, seeing the dirt walls disappear into darkness before him, and then the walls became narrower, much narrower, terrifyingly narrow, and he was lost in the pain of a squeezing compression that became steadily worse and worse, that crushed the air out of his lungs, and he was only dimly aware that the tunnel was slight, tilted slightly upward along the path, shifting his body, leaving him ga gasping and seeing spots before his eyes, and the pain was extreme on 385. Uh, so they are similar, though Crichton adapts this to provide a rebirth metaphor. It's, it's layered on pretty thick there. So we get two transportations through rabbit holes. Uh, the first brings us to Jurassic Park, Hammond's problematic zoo distinct from the real world, and the second is the dinosaur's world, as they finally get to observe a family of dinosaurs behaving in strange and incomprehensible ways. Another illusion we have is Lewis Dodson. You remember the villainous shyster Dr. Lewis Dodson? Uh, he is named almost certainly in homage to Charles Ludwig Dodson, who you will be more familiar with by his pen name, Lewis Carroll, the author of Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. There is an undeniable connectivity between Lewis Carroll, Charles Ludwig Dodson, and Lewis Dodson. Why might Crichton be interested in naming a character in honor of Lewis Carroll? I think the same reason he added all these White Rabbit and Adventures in Wonderland Easter eggs. He must have, you know, admired the author and story. Dodson was an academic as well as an author, just like Crichton. Dodson was a mathematician, poet, and author. Crichton, a medically trained doctor, obviously tremendously interested in what's on the vanguard of modern science, and an accomplished novelist. You can see how he may have admired Dodson's duality or success as a polymath. And Crichton, too, authored his first few works under a pseudonym, just like Lewis Carroll. It was uh, John Lang who wrote eight books and they were called Odds On, Zero Cool, The Venom Business, Drug of Choice, Grave Descent, Scratch One, Easy Go, and then there was Binary, which we talked a little bit about Binary uh, in episode 42, part B, if you want to go back and check that out. So there may not be any deep informative levels that connect Alice's Adventures in Wonderland to Jurassic Park, but there's certainly an affinity Crichton held for Lewis Carroll, and we can see that shining through the narrative. So what stretches might we make that connects Alice's Adventures in Wonderland to Jurassic Park? Well, Wonderland has a bunch of strange birds doing strange things. And what are birds except ancestors of dinosaurs? And they do things which our characters find strange too. So there's very loose fit. Uh, Wonderland has a monarch who wants to be off with everyone's head. And Jurassic Park has a rex or a king that's also threatening the lives of visitors at the park. Okay, maybe that's... Not too strong. Wonderland has a Cheshire cat who becomes famous for its grin. And Jurassic Park gives us a particular grinning character as well. You can think of him right now, uh, Ian Malcolm. Quote, Malcolm grinned. Hello, John. Yes, I'm afraid your old nemesis is here. Malcolm could be interpreted, especially as he's portrayed by Jeff Goldblum, as a very Cheshire cat-like character, even if he declares himself mad as a hatter instead. Malcolm isn't the only character who grins in the book. I don't think Crichton was being very strict in his points, but uh, in this point, but but listen to a description of the Cheshire Cat from Wikipedia. Alice first encounters the Cheshire Cat at the Duchess's house in her kitchen, and later on the branches of a tree where it appears and disappears at will, and engages Alice in amusing but sometimes perplexing conversation. Well, if that you know amusing but sometimes perplexing conversation isn't very Ian Malcolm-esque, right? Furthermore. The cat sometimes raises philosophical points that annoy or baffle Alice, which could be equally said of Malcolm as well. So I'll make a final far-reaching connection, one which probably is unworthy of further discussion, but I will try anyhow. Who would be the Alice character in Jurassic Park? We certainly could suggest that it's Gennaro, given our perspective through the rabbit hole shared by both Gennaro and Alice, but more to the point, which character shares the attributes and characteristics of a little girl? 
In the novel, we have two little girls, Tina Bowman and Lex Murphy. Tina is an adventurous, observant, tough little girl who can make dynamite drawings of dinosaurs. Lex, on the other hand, is a petulant, annoying, exclamatory, upsetting little character that causes nothing but dramatic conflict. Uh, and there are all kinds of characteristics and proclivities shared between Lex and... And here's the argument I'm going to make. She's characteristically very, very similar and repeatedly described in similar ways as John Hammond. They're related by blood. They both have emotional lability, as Henry Rue would describe it, characterized by wild mood swings. Hammond has, quote, flaring anger one moment, maudlin sentimentality the next. We're told in episode 32, The Bungalow, on page 198. Lex, we can recall, goes from unbearable to overjoyed out in the park. She's completely deranged, and that's not unlike Hammond. Second, both Hammond and Lex are connected to really wanting ice cream. Twice Hammond is eating ice cream, and, quote, old man's vice, he admits. First, he eats it while he's chatting with Henry Wu, and then the second time after the park has fallen, Hammond is with Gennaro, deliberately eating ice cream, which gives Gennaro a chill on uh, page 228, or episode 42. Then, Lex is going through the kitchen, hellbent on nothing but ice cream. Only ice cream. She doesn't want burgers or anything like that anymore. This further connects Hammond to Lex. Finally, Hammond is also portrayed as childlike, according to Gennaro in episode 12. Um, we're told this, quote, Gennaro had forgotten how short Hammond was as he sat in the chair. His feet didn't touch the carpeting. He swung his legs as he talked. There was a childlike quality to the man, even though Hammond must now be, what, 75, 76, something like that. We're told on page 59. The little girl-like qualities, or at least Lex Murphy-like qualities, are definitely associated with John Hammond. Plus, if we consider that Hammond is the Alice character, it contributes to the Alice versus the Cheshire Cat dichotomy as an analogy between Malcolm and Hammond, where, of course, Malcolm is the Cheshire Cat, perplexing Hammond with philosophical dialectics. The Cheshire Cat engages Alice in amusing but sometimes perplexing conversation, which is just what Malcolm does with Hammond. Or maybe he's a conflation of Hammond and Gennaro to, together, right? They're the park enablers, and this story is about judging Jurassic Park's enablers and challenging them to take accountability. Plus, the Cheshire Cat is always fading in and out visibly, Whereas, here we go, Malcolm is fading in and out medically, right? He's passing out as he's coming through the drugs and stuff like that. Pretty fascinating parallels there. But Malcolm doesn't singularly challenge only Hammond. He provokes all the enablers of Jurassic Park, including Gennaro, Wu, and Arnold. Perhaps all the enablers should be considered the Alice character, right? Some of these enablers accept responsibility for the collapse at Jurassic Park, like Gennaro and Muldoon. And some of that team does not, like Hammond, Wu, and Arnold. But... Two of those enablers are perplexed by Malcolm, Hammond and Gennaro, who can be read as the two sides of the same coin. Both are challenged to accept responsibility. Gennaro accepts responsibility and survives, going home to his wife and his daughter. Hammond refuses to accept responsibility, and he'll die with indignity. Do the outcomes of their fates in this novel relate to Wonderland in any special way? Not really. But just as Crichton borrowed tragic elements like hubris to incorporate into Jurassic Park without building a true Aristotelian tragic story, so too I believe he's just borrowing elements of Wonderland to characterize his narrative without this being, you know, a true coming-of-age story for a young girl in Victorian England, right? So I'll argue that Alice's adventures in Wonderland are obviously being alluded to and borrowed from because Crichton enjoyed that story very much. And, like, we mentioned when discussing hubris in episode 51 and 53 with Arnold and Wu, Crichton borrows elements from the tragic tradition, elements like hubris and tragic flaws, but doesn't fully complete the tragic narrative. Do we enjoy the novel more by spotting these classic elements in his narrative? Can we more closely relate to the characters by closely relating them 
closely relating their experiences to the familiar tale of Wonderland. If nothing else, Crichton enjoys including these Easter eggs, and I think borrowing from familiar tales helps him relate what's going on in the narrative. And if it's more clear to him to relate, it's clearer for us to ingest. Uh, that would just make the narrative even more accessible, so that's fine. Does Wonderland help us make sense of the singular, most inexplicably confusing moment in the novel? <laughs> Grant's unwavering mission to enter the Velociraptor Nest? Well, as wildly confusing and insane as entering the raptor nest is, perhaps we can borrow from Wonderland to explain Grant was just too curious, just like Alice, to not go down that rabbit hole and see what's going on down there. Ultimately, I think Crichton must have adored Alice's adventures in Wonderland, and as my conversation with Roselle Lim in episode 55, The Grid, developed, he intentionally and perhaps even subconsciously adapted the portal fantasy to satirize the problematic Western ideologies plaguing the biotech industry. And through the use of the portal fantasy, one can create a petri dish and a controlled environment in which to run a test, or in other words, a playground for satirizing a subject of power. Crichton transports our cast of characters to a new land where scientific power and egomaniacal idiocy are satirized, and the lesson on how to navigate the real world is gleamed from the lessons learned on the playground there. And the moral lesson our Alice must learn before she can return to the real world is that they cannot control nature. They must be humble before nature, and they must take full responsibility for their grievous mistakes. Recall, important moral laws are important for employing hubris in a story. Some characters fail to see the error of their ways and are eviscerated by dinosaurs like Wu, Arnold, and Nedry. Others refuse to accept responsibility, like Hammond. And finally, we get those who have sinned but have repented, like Gennaro, who will get to survive. But what do you think, <laughs> right? Does, does Alice's Adventures in Wonderland help inform our reading of Jurassic Park? Do, you, do these observations and interpretations carry water for you? Am I way off? Does it make any sense? Let me know. Just one last thing here before we go. Um, there's a very interesting motif of, uh, of being reborn. Uh, there's a very strong rebirth motif in this chapter, specifically as Gennaro is descending into the rabbit hole. This scene occurs after the almost paradigm chapter, where Malcolm declares we are beyond paradigm. So this could be our rebirth into a new world, or a post-scientific age. An age of responsibility, perhaps if you're to look at this as a cautionary tale with an optimistic lens, I guess. Gennaro has had the list of responsibilities that he's shirked outlined for him, and then he's dragged through hell, forced to face the consequences of his actions, and take responsibility. And by going down this rabbit hole, it is very much like going through a birth canal. This is not an uncommon trope in literature. People going through tunnels or tight squeezes literally representing their rebirth metaphorically. Quote, then the walls became narrower, much narrower, terrifyingly narrow, and he was lost in the pain of a squeezing compression that became steadily worse and worse. Sounds like contractions, anyone? That crushed the air out of his lungs, and he was only dimly aware that the tunnel tilted slightly upward along the path, shifting his body, leaving him gasping and seeing spots before his eyes, and the pain was extreme. I'm not reaching. This is describing a baby being born. <laughs> That's what it's saying. Quote, and suddenly he was free and bouncing, tumbling on concrete. Here, one of the words that describes him is bouncing, and we've all heard the expression bouncing baby boy, which presumably means the baby is healthy and energetic. But Crichton uses bouncing in association with babies earlier in this novel, too. Recall that line, human beings walking around in the streets of the modern world bouncing their pink new babies hardly stop to think that the substance at the center of it all, the substance that began the dance of life, was a chemical almost at the, as old as the earth itself, from the chapter Tim, while Henry Rue was off checking the freezer for embryos. 
So the colloquial idea of bouncing babies is alive and well in Jurassic Park. I suggest this further reinforces the rebirth imagery. And if it's not rebirth, at least it's new beginnings. And it doesn't end there. Gennaro can't see. He can only hear voices. Then he feels fingers touching him. He feels cold. And then he's being inspected by doctors. Remember, Sattler is caressing his face. Now, it's it's Dr. Alan Grant and Ellie Sattler, not obstetricians, but they're saying he looks okay. Yes, he's breathing. This is what an obstetrician and nurse would be doing with a baby that they've just delivered. This rebirth motif is almost ham-fisted. It's laid on so thick. The other side of being reborn means that you have a shot at redemption. You can be forgiven of your past transgressions. Gennaro has been challenged to take responsibility for his role in Jurassic Park. This task is part of his penance and his judgment, but after being reborn, he can have a second chance at a good life. Conversely, in the next chapter, we'll see what happens if one chooses against redemption, doesn't change their ways, and stays the corrupted course. They may not get a second chance at a good life. So tune in for that chapter. It's called Hammond. You can guess what's happening and to who. Thanks to my special guest today, Dr. David Verecchio. Uh, you were the perfect guest for today's chapter, and I'm so glad you took an interest in coming on the show. And I want to sign off today thanking you for joining me as well. If you want to read along in the book, add some thoughts to what we've been discussing on the show, or be a guest on the show and chat with me about anything you like about Jurassic Park, you can do that by connecting with me. I'm at ryansrogers at gmail.com. If you'd like to be a guest, drop me a line. We can try and set something up. We can rehash and tear down and gush over and chit-chat about any part of the book or also not the book, all you'd like. The Jurassic Park cast is part of the Spring Chickens banner of amateur intellectual properties, including the Spring Chickens funny pages, Tomb of the Undead graphic novel, the Second Lapse graphic novelettes, The Infantry, and the Worst of Them All, The King Street Capers. And you can find links to all that baggage in the show notes or by visiting the schickens.blogspot.com or finding us on Facebook at facebook.com slash springchickencapers or you can find me on Twitter at RogersRyan22. Thank you dearly for tuning in to the Jurassic Park cast, the Jurassic Park podcast where we talk about the novel Jurassic Park and also not that too. Until next time.